Hello, this is Mark Richter with another episode of Linux for the Layman. Want to feel safe, secure, and capable when using your computer? This is for you if you want to succeed and know you can handle your computer tasks with ease. This is episode 18 of Linux for the Layman, The Joy of Computing. We're going to cover more on the dreaded command line interface. I keep saying that because that's a lot of what I hear with respect to the command line. And I'm hoping that with a little more information, maybe a few laughs, and some context, you'll find it's nothing to dread for the most part. It's nothing to dread insofar as it's one of the interfaces to your computer. And if you have a dread of computers, you're probably going to dread this too. Today, I'm going to talk about file permissions. Yes, I've been promising that for two whole episodes. And I know this one's been a bit late in coming. I'm not going to explain that. I'm not making excuses. I'm just going to go into it. File permissions in Linux depend on three categories of users. There's the owner of the file, that's the user who created the file, or was given ownership of the file. We'll talk about that another time. There's the group that has access to the file, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And then there's everyone, which is anyone on the computer, what kind of rights they have. Each of, these each of these three categories of users has one or more of three possible permissions. Read permission, which means they can look at the file. Write permission, which means they can modify the file. And execute permission, which obviously means they can execute the file. Why is that important? If you have a command and it's not marked as executable for whatever kind of access you have to it, then you can't run it. You might be able to read it. Chances are you won't be able to write it because if you're not going to be allowed to execute it, why would the person who created it or gave it its permissions want you to write to it and mess it up? That's the fundamental structure of permissions on files. The user who created the file is known as the owner of the file. You can change the owner of a file. You can give it away with a privilege command called chown, C-H-O-W-N. I'll talk about that another time, but that's one way to change the ownership of the file. The group access to the command depends on one of these nice features of Linux systems. Everyone who runs on a Linux system has a user ID. You have to. You have to log in as that user, and that's your user ID by default. There are ways to change that. For example, if you are an administrative user and you need to run an administrative command, you have to change your temporary user ID to that of root, the administrative user account the one and only administrative user account on all Linux systems. And then you can run that command. You can do that either singly or you can do that in an interactive mode where everything you do is as the root user. We strongly 
recommend you avoid that. And that may sound a little bit technical, so we'll get back to it another time if there's interest. The group that you are in determines some of your usage rights throughout the system. Typically, the default setup when you create a user account, as in when you install Linux on your machine, you give it a user ID it will automatically create a group with the same number as your user ID which these days is typically 1000 there are reasons for that don't worry about it so you'll have a user and a group ID that are the same it'll have your name for the group so for example if my name is mark as a user ID then when I set up the system mark is my user ID and I belong to group mark which is the group ID and then the other groups or the other access to anyone who's not user mark or in group mark gets the third category of everyone else in the world the reason we do that is if I create a file typically I will have read and write permissions on that file depending on how I set up my default access permissions which I'll talk to another time but there's always a default who gets what rights when you create a file it's called the UMask which is short for user mask typically if I create a file if it's uh, say a text file it will have my user with read and write permissions anyone in my group will have read access and anyone else in the world on this machine will either be allowed read access or no access depending on how that UMask is set up there are advantages to going either way and we can talk about those another time but by default I can read and write any file that I create if it's a program I write and then I build that program with the appropriate tools the compiled version or the final version of that program will come out with read write and execute permissions for me and read and execute permissions for my group which means that anyone in my group can look at the file and they can execute it they just can't write to it I can look at it I can write to it and I can execute it normally when you have write access to an executable file if it's a program you don't want to write it directly you let the compiler write it or whatever tool you're using to execute that program you give that tool permission to write it but you don't write it directly yourself if it's a shell script that's not the case if it's a shell script that you've set up a shell script is basically a file of text that happens to contain commands you want the shell to execute in a particular sequence you want to make those files executable the command you use to change the permissions on a file is called chmod 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 takes an argument to say what permissions to apply and an argument or list of arguments of the files to which to apply those permissions so if I wrote a script called hello world 
I write it in a text editor like VI. It'll come out with read-write permissions for me, the owner, and read permissions for the group, and no permissions for the world. But I want to make that executable because it's supposed to, it's a shell script, I want to execute it. So I type in chmod plus x, which makes it executable, and then hello world, and then enter. And that makes hello world executable. And depending on the umask, that makes it executable for me, the owner, my group, and maybe yes or no, the world. Again, depending on how the mask is set up. I believe the default mask is read, write, execute for the owner, read and execute for the group, and no access for the world. So you have to explicitly add world access to the files you create. I could be mistaken about that. It's possible that the world also gets read and execute access. It's easy enough to find out, create a file, and see what the permissions on it are. How do you see what the permissions on a file are? That's a really tough choice. Remember last time we talked about the ls command, list your directory? ls-l, which is the long listing option for the ls command, will show you what the permissions are. In fact, I'm going to do that right now in a terminal that I have in front of me. I'm going to see vi hello world I spell that right? World.txt. That tells me it's a text file. And I'll type in some junk and I'll write the file. And what this tells me is it is read write for the owner, me, read write for the group, which is the group with my name on it, and readable to the world. In fact, if I type in umask, that will tell me what the umask is. It's 0002, which means anyone, not anyone, which means the owner can read, write, or potentially execute it. The group can read, write, or potentially execute it. And the world can read and execute it, but not write it. So let's make this executable. chmod plus x hello world dot text. Now the listing shows read write execute for me the owner, read write execute for the group with my name, and read and execute for the world. Now I can execute the program or I can run this text file as if it were a command. That's not going to work because I typed in a bunch of junk and it says Hello world text line one DKJFSGS it's keyboard crap. Command not found. Surprising, there is no command for keyboard crap. That's randomly typed characters on the keyboard. That's enough for this half. In a minute we're gonna do a little bit more about LO, about the LS command and the nature of options and parameters. Welcome back. Let's take a look at those options and parameters we talked about a little bit in the last episode and I talked about it a little bit more now, but what are they really? And how does the shell know the difference? Basic rule is that in Linux, options begin with a minus sign or a double minus sign. 
It depends on the nature of the option, and we'll cover that in just a moment. Parameters, which is everything else on the command line following the command, possibly interspersed with options, is anything that does not start with the minus sign. That can be numbers, strings of characters, file names, whatever the command calls for when it's expecting a parameter. The general structure of command interpretation is that the shell will find all the options in the line and pass them in well, actually, the command shell doesn't care. It passes in the command line to the command that you gave it, and that's the end of that. Most commands are written to reparse the command line, find all the options, and apply them, and then operate on the parameters. For example, in the chmod command that I gave you, chmod space plus x space hello world dot txt chmod doesn't have any options there. It's just plus x is the first parameter and hello world.txt is the second parameter. If you are running the ls command and you want the long listing, you type ls space dash l space and any number of file names you want to have listed. The dash l is an option that the ls command recognizes that means, oh, do a long listing. It will not list a file called minus l. And in fact, it's a general good practice in Linux never to start a file name with the minus sign. It really confuses the system. Now, I also mentioned that options can begin with one minus sign or two. If they begin with one minus sign, the option has to be one letter. If they begin with two minus signs, the option can be a word and the parsing by the command is usually done a little bit differently. The options that begin with minus minus are called long options. Most long options, for example, help. If you want help with the ls command, you can type in ls space dash h. That's the shorthand help command. Actually, no, that didn't work. ls dash h, it doesn't recognize it. Dash eight. So let's try ls dash dash help. That gives a summary of the man page for the ls command. It's relatively short, although warning, it's almost a screen and a half on my 72 row terminals. Now, this is where one of the nice features of the bash shell come in very handy. If you type in ls-help, you're going to get more than a screen full of information, and it just goes flying by. You can go back using the cursor scroll bar using your mouse and move it up so you can see the whole thing. Or you can do something a little bit different and have it appear one screen full at a time. The way you do this is that you send the output from the ls-l command to another command called more. More is a command that takes whatever you tell it to input and it displays it one screenful at a time. And actually in modern Linux systems the more command has been replaced by one called less. It was, it's one of those pieces of humor that Linux 
programmers and developers like to engage in. Less will show you one screen full at a time. The difference is typically to see the next screenful you type the spacebar and you get another screenful. The more command will not back up. You can't go back and say no I want to see that first one again. The less command you can back up. You type in B and it will back up one screenful. You can also type the return key at the, the prompt at the end of one screenful and it will display one more line. In more, when you get to the end of the file, it just stops the command. In less, when you get to the end of the file, it tells you end, meaning you're at the end of the file, and you have to quit the less command. More quits by itself. Play with them, they're kind of fun. Now, how do you play with them? You send the output from the ls-l command to the more command using a special character, the vertical bar. This is called piping. It means that you're telling the shell to set up a pipe, which is a data conduit, and send the output from the ls-l command as input to the next command, more or less, whichever one you choose to use. If that's confusing, just try this. Type ls space dash l space vertical bar or pipe character, which is usually the capital backslash key. It frequently sits above the enter key on many keyboards, but you may have to hunt because not every keyboard has the same layout. And that's not a Linux thing, that's keyboard manufacturer's fun. Space, let's say less, L-E-S-S, enter. So you've typed ls-l pipe less, enter. Try that, play with it a little bit, and you'll see what kind of fun you can have with it. The pipe character, or the vertical bar, is one of the special characters recognized by the shell as a special character, and it tells the shell to do something different than just pass that character into a command. If you happen to need to pass that character into command, we'll talk about that next time where we'll go into more of the special characters that the shell recognizes. There are a lot of them, and they have wonderfully various uses that makes it very powerful. Now, in case you're wondering, there's a couple things I did want to discuss. In working with Windows, which I've done quite a bit more in the last few weeks than I have in a long time, it finally dawned on me why people have such resistance to learning the command line. Actually, there are a number of reasons. The first one is that the, the DOS command shell that you get with Windows called command.exe has a terrible interpretive language and it's really a wimpy shell. The Windows PowerShell by comparison is a much more powerful shell but the syntax is totally different so you have to learn yet another command line language to be able to use the PowerShell. And there's some things in Windows that you have to use the PowerShell to do. They can't be done through the graphics interface. And that brings me back to why learn the command line at all. Because in Linux, you can do almost everything through the command line interface, typically with a lot of ease, that are much more difficult to do through the graphics shell. I'll talk about that more next time. But the graphics shell was an add-on to the terminal shell in Linux because 
Linux started off as a terminal interface. Unix started off as a terminal interface because back in those days when Unix was invented, way back in, ooh, 1970, there were not a lot of graphical user interfaces. In fact, the graphical user interface didn't become popular even with the Apple IIe when it came out in the early 80s. The graphics interface didn't become popular until Windows became popular, which took a while because it started off as buggy, but we're not talking about that now. But in Windows, Windows was designed to be really easy to use. So everything was done through the graphics interface, except for the high-tech administrative stuff, which you had to learn to use the command shell for. And most people didn't have to do that. They would just run the graphics interface and use the mouse to get around. In Linux, the power behind the graphics interface is still the command line and the commands. I hope you learned something today. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you found it funny or at least educational. If you have questions, please ask me. I thrive on questions and you'll thrive on the answers. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you'll come back for the next episode. We'll talk more about the dreaded command line interface and maybe reduce some of that dread. Come on back and join us again. Bye for now.